0: Hi, and thank you for tuning in. You know, I don't know anybody doesn't have a hard time understanding what leadership is about. It has changed in the 21st century. And because it has changed... You know, there's not a lot of information out there that pulls it all together so that you have the steps you need to be the best leader that you can. Leadership is all about influence and this podcast is about helping you understand how to influence others and to build the collaborative team that provides you the inclusive, high performing workplace that you are looking for, whether this is the first job you've had as a leader, whether you're an individual contributor, or you've been in leadership for 30 years, there is something for you on this particular podcast. It's called Remarkable Leadership Lessons shared by Denise Cooper and her friends. And if you like, you can always go over to my website and pick up other gems that will help you become a remarkable leader. Today's question is this, we work, we work a lot, whether you're paid or you're unpaid for your work. For a lot of us, it offers a sense of fulfillment, identity, friendship, and sometimes conflict. At the center of our environments, our work environments, we have policies and procedures and standard operating processes, procedures, and they all guide how we work. But what about the stories we tell ourselves? And how, do, how are those stories holding us back from peak performance and fulfillment? The other question I want you to think about as you're listening to this podcast is, what are the root causes for dysfunctional workplaces? What is this thing called the me-oriented workplace? And if work is supposed to be a collaborative effort, why is so many work processes and procedures focused only on the me? And if you're a leader listening to this, is there another way, you might be asking? Is there something that you are missing? Well, that's all what I'm setting up so that you can listen to my friend, Kyle McDowell. And guess what? Kyle has written a book, like many people, but I think this book is slightly different. He has written this book straight from his personal experiences. And oftentimes, I mean, that's what Remarkable Leadership Lessons is all about, is taking the wisdom that we learn on this journey called life and work and turning it into something that can help everybody else. Kyle McDowell Incorporated is the parent company and author, speaker, and leadership coach. He's been doing this work for a number of years now. And one of the things he's written about and what he teaches others is the 10 we's. That's right, W-E's. And what are those philosophies, those guiding principles, and how do you use them to establish a foundation for building and sustaining a culture of excellence? And if you've listened to me before, you know I do not believe in perfection, but I do believe we can all achieve excellence. With that, how are you doing today, Kyle?
1: I am wonderful. And what an introduction, Denise. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, no problem. No problem. Well, you know what? Your book is on Amazon and Barnes and Nobles. You just got through talking to me about its uh, book, its um, top 10 bestseller where?
1: Wall Street Journal bestseller, uh, USA Today bestseller, and just so humbled to also share uh, the book hit number one uh, in nine different categories on Amazon uh, back in September when it launched. So- somebody's reading it (laughs) a few folks yeah yeah you know i think it's uh it's as i mentioned i've been humbled but um i think it speaks to the need right i think it speaks to where many of us are in our leadership journey and how we're all hungry um for for a different way so i think that's it's less about me less about the book and more about those that are excited and and hungry to do something a little bit differently than they've seen in the past
0: what do you think they're hungry for
1: authentic leaders i think Mm -hmm. i think um And when I say they, you know, I group myself in that, which is part of the reason why I I was compelled to write the book is I was um, often disappointed by the bosses, and I refer to them as bosses rather than Mm -hmm. leaders because they're Mm -hmm. not the same, as you know. Mm -hmm. Um, I found myself really disenfranchised, almost apathetic at times, because I was led by 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 many folks that I would describe as less than authentic. So I know I've been hungry for it forever throughout my nearly 30-year journey in corporate America. And I don't think I'm unique in that regard. I think a lot of us are disenfranchised or become disenfranchised, and we lose that optimism that we had when we first joined the workforce. And a lot of it's because a lack of authenticity, and it's a lack of relatability with those that uh, lead us, and certainly a lack of trust. And I think those are really three main ingredients. I, I believe authenticity and relatability uh, set the foundation for trust. So, that, I think that's where the hunger um, originates.
0: So, let's peel back. You use the word authenticity. And if you look at probably 50 books on the best selling business book, everybody's talking about authentic, being authentic, right? Yeah. Yeah. Bring your authentic self to work. Yeah. But we do, as I said earlier, we do have these policies, these procedures, these unwritten rules mm-hmm. of how we have to look. Mm-hmm. What does a leader look like? The lack of sharing information of there's still many cultures that say, leave your work life, your home life at the door mm-hmm. kinds of things. When you say authentic, what do you mean?
1: In every sense of the word, I, I, I you, t- you touched on something there, Denise, that I'm really passionate about is that it that's the unwritten in many cases, I guess, occasionally it is written understanding or requirement that you are a different person when you step mm-hmm. into the workplace versus mm-hmm. who you are outside of the workplace, and I mm-hmm. think that's a real shame mm-hmm. uh, because it's our diversity, it's the different personalities, it's the different backgrounds, the different contexts and perspectives that we bring to work that really enable greatness. I think uh, it allows you know my lack of uh, exposure of something to be complemented by your depth of exposure to something, and together we have you know quite a combination. You know, I say this in a in a joking manner, but all the way down to our vocabulary, the words that we use in the workplace, you would never find yourself using at home. Denise, when's the last time you came home and asked someone about a deliverable?
0: Mm -hmm. You know?
1: Hey hon, you said you were gonna go pick up the groceries. You fell short on that deliverable today. Mm -hmm. Like we don't even talk the same. So Mm -hmm. You know, I think that hunger is a result of people being led in ways that are less than authentic. And and to answer the question directly, the authenticity is, I am who I am, warts and all. I say that a lot in the book, warts and all. Mm -hmm. And that means I admit when I don't know something. That means I'm okay being wrong. I'm okay making a mistake and then encouraging others around me to have that same approach it's okay to make a mistake. Let's just mm-hmm. don't make it multiple times. Let's mm-hmm. fix it. So I think authenticity uh, in the workplace is I'm the same person inside of work as I am outside of work. You know, obviously there are limits to, to the ways that we can behave and things that we can say and do inside of the workplace because you know, that's obvious. But I certainly don't expect you to be a different person. Mm-hmm. I, as a matter of fact, I, I encourage, as I say, warts and all, be you. And then if we agree to disagree on approach or we have different perspectives, that's great. Because that disagreement usually results in in progress and, and results for everyone.
0: But, you know, we all are so nervous and often fearful about yeah. disagreement. Yeah. And leaders who, you know, part of the way we work today is they are head down, meeting after meeting after yeah. meeting after meeting results, you know, what's happening here, what's happening there, what's happening there, what's happening there, why is this broke, why is that? And I don't, and they don't have the space to be able to understand or at least bring that authentic self, that other side of their self of, I don't know what this is, I'll get back to you. It's all demand, 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 demand. So the kind of leader that you're talking about, this leader who leads from we, and we're going to get into what does we mean? The way we've constructed workplaces also often doesn't allow us to actually be what you're talking about.
1: Well, I think it's incumbent on the leader of the team or the of the organization, depending on the scenario, to cultivate that it's okay to be mm-hmm. you, to cultivate an environment where others know they are in great hands if they make a mistake. They know they're not going to be hit over the head with a mistake, but rather have a hand extended to them mm-hmm. to pick them up when that mistake is made. And you you said something a moment ago also that I, I talk about in the book a bit, and I'm really passionate about is, you know, we're heads down, we're flying from meeting to meeting, we're solving big problems, but none of that matters if we don't have a team that is inspired by us. Otherwise, we're going to deliver mediocre results. And mm-hmm. if you're happy with mediocrity, continue to keep your head down, continue mm-hmm. to bounce from meeting to meeting. But I, I, I'm here to tell you, at least in my experience, most of us, and I did it for many years, confuse outcomes and activity. So that activity drives us from meeting to meeting. I'm triple booked. You know, I don't have time to speak because I've got another meeting to get to. And I think over time we have lost what really matters most and how we prioritize our day. Because as a leader, very few times is there a meeting ever more important than talking to someone on the team, mm-hmm. picking them up, encouraging them, empowering them, inspiring them. You know, if if I am conflating the importance of my schedule with the importance of the impact that I am obligated to deliver as a leader, I'm missing the boat. And again, I think you can you can operate that way for a certain period of time, but it's not sustainable and you certainly won't won't gather the followership required to build that culture of excellence that we talk about so much.
0: You know, Kyle, it's for some people as I'm listening to you, I'm um, you know, I get this this thing in the back of my head that says, Who are you to yeah. be able to tell me this yeah. kind of stuff? Yeah. And I often don't start with the you know, the long credentials of this, but could you just give a little bit of what made you write the book? How did it come about? What were you doing? I mean, have you been a CEO before? Tell us something that, in the end, makes me think. Well, wait a minute. Maybe he's like me.
1: I I ask myself that same question every day. Who am I? Who am I to have such a strong opinion on how to build a culture of excellence? Who am I to say that the we way is better than the me way? Mm-hmm. Um, so. I think that makes me incredibly relatable because I don't have all the answers. Mm -hmm. So, I'm a guy that spent nearly 30 years in corporate America, really lucky guy, taking on bigger and bigger roles throughout that nearly 30 years uh, to the point where I've led tens of thousands of team members at multiple organizations. I've worked for three Fortune 10 companies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have to admit, and I alluded to it a moment ago, but, you know, the first 20 years of my career were really hard charging. Probably wasn't the leader that I would be proud to admit. Um, mm-hmm. I was really results focused at all costs, you know, results mm-hmm. outweighed everything, including mm-hmm. the people. But around year twenty of that journey, I, I I was so um as I mentioned, borderline apathetic, I just thought to myself, there has to be a better way. Mm-hmm. It, there just has to be a better way. So I told myself if I was ever given an opportunity in a role to lead the way that I always wanted to be led, but wasn't, again, warts and all. Mm -hmm. Um, I was going to take that opportunity and run with it. And if I failed, I would fail knowing I swung for the fences. Mm -hmm. And if I was successful, I felt like the results would be um, fellowship that I never could have dreamt of, uh, connections with people that were at one point peers or colleagues, but now friends or even family. Mm -hmm. Um, And I do talk about that in the book as well. I've I've got a number of people that we started as strangers. Uh, Either they reported to me, we were peers or colleagues, and now I consider them family.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that opportunity came about in 2016, um, where I was offered a role to lead about 15,000 really purpose-driven men and women in the enrollment centers for the Affordable Care Act and for 1-800-Medicare.
0: Okay.
1: So it was a government contracting uh, arrangement where I led the a $6 billion program mm-hmm. um, for the federal government. And I was warned. Denise, I was warned when I took the role that the culture inside this organization was lacking. There was mm-hmm. some some silos that needed to be broken down. There was a little bit of toxicity, and the the gentleman I was asked to replace had quite the reputation for leading in a very me-oriented boss manner. Mm-hmm. so I was uh, it was the night before I was scheduled to meet with the top fifty or sixty leaders of this program, and Denise, I had no idea what I was going to say.
0: I, <laughs> and how many times I, I know you're, you're sitting there looking at that blank piece of paper and going exactly right. <gasps>
1: it's exactly right. I'm like, and I had this gut check moment. And, you know, this is the stream of consciousness that went on that evening. It was about midnight in Lawrence, Kansas, blank laptop in my lap, still wearing the suit that I had on that day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I said, dude, are you really about it? Or are you just a talker? So I thought this was my chance and, Mm -hmm. um, about three hours, uh, went by and I was left with 10 sentences in this blank, uh, one page document. And each of those sentences started with we, Mm -hmm. and the, and it was not a bit of pre-planning, um, Mm -hmm. had no idea I would end up with 10. I didn't Mm -hmm. know that I would call them principles. I just knew I needed to communicate in a way that told this team. I was not about me. I was about them. Mm -hmm. And I knew I needed them. I had no idea what I'd gotten myself into. Mm -hmm. Um, And the tenure in that team was remarkably high, Mm -hmm. Um, but they were very, very apprehensive about me. I was the new guy. um, An outsider. An outsider. So I'm not that creative. So I'm looking at this laptop with 10 sentences. I'll start with the word we. So I have the 10 we's. That's mm-hmm. that's how the branding happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so I stepped out the next morning, uh, really kind of blurry-eyed because I had spent you know most of the evening before preparing the, the presentation after I came to those 10 10 sentences. Uh, the presentation was entirely black and white and that was that was on purpose because I felt these principles were so fundamental. and, and by the way, it's mm-hmm. probably worth pointing out uh, and let's maybe nerd out for a second. A principle is nothing more than a foundational belief by definition. Yeah. Not my word. That's that. That's a definitional uh, perspective of and it's it's belief that we hold to be true. Mm-hmm. So I told the team when I stepped out, I said, you know, these will be our rules of the road, and they will first govern how we treat each other. Okay, and then they will second govern those we serve externally, our clients. Mm-hmm. And and I think I think that that was probably in hindsight what. What really resonated early on during that presentation was listen, I'm not the new guy coming in to tell you how we're going to do things. It's my way or the highway. You know, get on board or you're out. It was this is how I would like us to treat each other. And number one, guys, this is how I expect you to hold me accountable. Okay. You must hold me accountable to these standards because it's only fair because I'm going to hold you to these standards. Mm-hmm. About half the audience appeared to be on board, uh, about a quarter of the audience. Absolutely unengaged, unenthused. I was a fraud in their minds. As a matter of fact, one person afterwards admitted that he during the during the talk he Googled the ten wees to see if I had stole them. Uh-huh. Denise, he asked for the presentation because he yeah. wanted to check the properties to see if I was the creator of the document. Oh
0: my gosh!
1: Of course, I gave it to him. I said, yeah. I appreciate, I appreciate it. And then there was the last quarter of folks. Um, I think were excited and optimistic and open minded. Yeah. So fast forward six years later, um, the Ten Wees are still the cultural manifesto for that organization. They have the Ten Wee Awards twice a year, mm-hmm. and you know, back to the original question you asked is, you know, who am I? I had no inclination that this would result in a book. I had no inclination that I'd end up leaving corporate America to go out on my own to evangelize these principles. But you know, who really pushed me to get there was that that team. So uh-huh. when I left that organization in 2019. I started to get phone calls from folks that really cared about me. They reported to me or I, re- mm-hmm. or I reported to them even in one instance, but mm-hmm. they were peers and I could tell that they were adamant and really passionate that you have something here, man, you should run with this, mm-hmm. which I don't think there's any better Testament than that. The folks that were first skeptical, ultimately becoming my biggest cheerleaders and advocates for taking this uh, more broadly.
0: So I'm not going to tell everybody what the we's are. So we're not going to go over that. You got to buy the book for that. Cause not only do I want to support you, but when I read the book, and I did buy it, I sat with them, the, the 10 we's themselves, and then sat there and looked at them. And you're, you're right about one thing. For the most part, they're all things that we say we're going to do, that we want to have happen. They're, they're remarkable in their simplicity. Amen. And plain speaking. For lack of a, you know, the yeah, you know, I hate the the one I hate the most is we're gonna fly the plane as we're build the plane, because I think that's a recipe aerodynamically, that's a recipe for crash at all away, right? Yeah. Yeah. And if you sit with each one, just read, you know, there's a great story up under it and all of that, but just listen to it resonate in your head and through your mouth. And the one that I, you know, we all say, but it's really difficult to do is say what we do. Mm-hmm and do what we say Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. how many times have we said that to each other etc and then we're confronted with somebody who said they were going to do something and they ain't do it Mm -hmm. and now you're you're challenged with is it a principle something we believe and is it worth addressing and that's often where our fear of conflict our fear of not wanting to be liked our fear of if I say it wrong, I might get sued. I might get, you know, somebody might smack me, particularly day or I wind up with an active shooter in my workplace. And so there's lots of things, environmental things, as well as stuff, the story in our head that keeps us from saying, hey, Kyle, you know, I thought last Tuesday we agreed you'd get that report to me. It's not here. When you had to implement that one." Tell me some of the challenges you had, but also the stories you heard from the people who are around you when they were confronted with, these are people they work with, as you said, a long time mm-hmm. and there are habits in an organization, you know, we over commit right. and now I have to be confronted with overcommitting.
1: So with, with all of the 10 weeks, it was important to me to walk the walk not just talk the talk, and I'll give an example here in a moment, but on the one that you asked about, uh, we say what we're going to do and then we do it. We, number three, was less about the team keeping its commitments to me and more about keeping their commitments to one another and me keeping my commitments to them. Mm -hmm. Because in, in my experience, at least in most environments, if the leader or the boss makes a commitment to someone on the team and misses that commitment, the day keeps going. it's not mm-hmm. the end of the world.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: however, if you miss a commitment to me as your leader, there are repercussions
0: mm-hmm.
1: and i don't I don't dig that double standard I, I think that is some I call it the leadership gap where mm-hmm. I'm allowed to do things that you're not allowed to do, and I just think that creates a, a a distrust and a disconnect that why would I follow this guy if he doesn't even hold himself accountable to the yeah. principles he's holding me accountable to yeah. So it's really important for me to walk that walk because at the end of the day, if you're a part of a team, someone's mm-hmm. counting on you to do something, period. Mm-hmm. And it's not, and it's rarely just because I, I need something for my own enjoyment or entertainment. It's, you know, if I make an ask of someone, it's usually because I have to do something with that that product and that's take mm-hmm. it to my leader. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's communicate with the client, you know, wherever the scenario is. So the, the person who makes a commitment and doesn't deliver on that has... Pulled a domino out of the the run of dominoes, and and it's not just their own brand that's been compromised; it's now mine, and mm-hmm. it's it's our brand. So I think with all the principles, it's it was really important. And this, and by the way, when asked by uh, leaders when I give talks or I do consulting work, you know about how to implement the ten wees, I always answer: it must start with you, the per the leader. It must start because that this type of approach. It's one thing for the team to subscribe to a series of beliefs, but it's another thing for the leader to be on that same subscription and we all do it together. Right. So I think that one, you know, we say we're going to do, and then we do it as a big opportunity for the leader to show that he, re- he or she really is on the same playing field. Mm-hmm. They're not on some perfection pedestal and they have a different set of rules. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll tell you, if I may, there's another example that I think is really points uh, or paints this picture. And that is uh, number nine, we embrace challenge. Yeah. And that is is so easy for the leader to not embrace a challenge from an employee or a member of the team by not listening, disregarding their input. Nope, it's my way or the highway. I love your idea, but we're still going this way because I know better. Which I think is a really, really missed opportunity. Because as you know, those closest to the work know a heck of a lot more about our opportunities for oh, improvement, absolutely. right?
0: And what so, will work, even if it's intuitively. They may right. not be able to tell you, but they can look at it and say, mm.
1: yeah. And you know, it's ego. If the leader steps in and says, I'm not listening to that or, or, you know, th- we're going this direction because I'm the leader rather than mm-hmm. listening to the the input of why. So mm-hmm. there, there was a woman um, on the team, very senior. She's vice president level that reported to me when I first rolled these principles out and she was not an adapter or adopter rather. She, mm-hmm. um, she, in no uncertain terms, although she didn't say it directly, she was very, very skeptical of Kyle, very, very skeptical of these principles. And she challenged me. We, number eight is we challenge each other. And then nine is we embrace challenge. But she challenged me every opportunity she had. She would, uh, my favorite example is I said, hey, Julia, she knows I share the story, by the way. I said, hey, Julia, I need to see the Excel of whatever the scenario was. It's been so many years. And she said, no problem. I'll get you that information. Get to my office, and there's an email with a screenshot from Excel of the data I requested. And if you've Mm -hmm. ever worked in Excel, you know that's not so helpful versus looking at the formulas, the references, and so on. And I said, "Come on, man, Julia, you gotta. May may I have the workbook, please?" And then she sent like one of the tabs, like they didn't get the entire workbook. And this is an example of back and forth that she and I had for several months. And I, oh my goodness. I'd be dishonest with you if I was telling you I wasn't hot under the collar. I mean, I was <laughs> I was fired up. I don't think she ever knew it. Matter of fact, mm-hmm. she called me out one day on something that I directed or asked or I forget what it was and we had a really heated conversation. But I never allowed myself to react in a way that I could be accused of being a hypocrite about embracing challenge. Mm-hmm. So the beauty of this story is, and the timing of our conversation today is great. Remember, I haven't worked in this organization north of three years now. About three hours ago, we had our regularly scheduled monthly one-on-one. Julia mm. and I, we're great friends, and she has turned from the one of the biggest resistors when the whole thing was rolled out to uh, one of its biggest and loudest, and most vocal champions, and still in that organization. I should also note, uh, when we first began working together, she had about two, three hundred employees. She has north of ten thousand now.
0: Okay, so you you know you got to pause right there. I'd love so. to. Yeah. Because all of us has that scenario. I don't know a leader who hasn't, at one time or another, had a resistor in their family, you know, or their their community, their their team, or something like that. Their tribe. Yeah. What was the moment? I mean, you endured the okay back and forth, one sheet, one pencil, one. But what what was it that flipped it?
1: Uh, I don't know that there was a sentinel event as much as there was consistency on my living. These principles, mm-hmm. uh, and I know I realize that could sound a little self-serving, but but it's actually true. So mm-hmm. we got to be very close—not nearly as close as we are now—but she would see how I would react to others when they mm-hmm. challenged me. She would see how I would react to our frontline employees. We fifteen thousand employees, so to keep all of those folks happy is you know that's a that's a tough task. So I was often greeted with challenge, and I wasn't perfect, of course. I reacted occasionally in ways that probably weren't uh, the best in terms of evangelizing and living these principles. But I think over time she realized I was really in it for her, man. And I, and Mm -hmm. I, and I am like that with every one of the team. Mm -hmm. If you resist me um, now, because I have this case study, I actually have gotten way better at removing any ego that comes from our natural reaction to say, wait, I'm the boss. You can't resist. You can't push back. So I think over time she realized it was genuine I worked to get her promoted. I gave her lots of opportunity to do more and bigger things than she had ever been given before. So I think I made that investment in her and I wasn't shy about it. Hey, one other really quick story is um, she and that organization had me back to deliver a keynote speech a few months ago Mm -hmm. um, about the wheeze. And she introduced me, and this is the first time that I can recall she ever did this. She introduced me by saying, you guys may not know it, but Kyle and I didn't get along at all for a very long period of time when he started. she laid it out for the whole team. Mm-hmm. Turns out most of them knew there was some head shaking, <laughs> uh, right? We, we weren't as coy about it as we thought. But I just think it's a beautiful story that I go from. She has stuck in my brain as the most vocal kind of dissenter or resistor during that time period. And she is arguably the biggest proponent and my biggest fan or the we biggest fan that I can think of. And it never would have been had I snapped and been the classic boss that I had observed for so many years. And and I have to give her a lot of credit, too. She kept, you know, although she was resisting, she kept an incredibly open mind.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, we have we have grown very, very tight. And we ended today's one on one saying, gosh, it sure would be great when we can work together again. Not if, but when we oh, can work together. Again. Yeah, yeah, It's beautiful.
0: Did, but I have to ask from an HR point of view, did you have that conversation of you do good work, but you don't do great work? Because um, of this resistance?
1: It was more, it was more like you do great work, but you alienate people. They don't gravitate towards you because you're a little prickly. And, and I have to admit, I was lucky in that she was open to that feedback. Mm-hmm. And um now every time, because I still have one-on-ones with many others from that team just to check mm-hmm. in on how their career's going, what mm-hmm. I can do for them, and vice versa, book updates and those things. And I usually ask, How's Julia doing? Or mm-hmm. how's Dave doing? Mm-hmm. You know, just because I care. Mm-hmm. And without exception, when we talk about how Julie is doing, every single time they talk about the transition and more importantly, the transformation she made from a little bit more on the prickly side to being approachable, to being more we oriented and to genuinely caring about those in her care. Mm-hmm. And she's got a list of pe- people that she's promoted, uh, even, including out of the organization. Right, she, That demonstrates incredible care. I care about you, not us, not mm-hmm. the team. I care about you. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, uh, you know, I think that's, we we did have those tough conversations and, you know, it's always easier when the person is coachable and open to it. And she was, and boy, it bared fruit? Because as I mentioned, yeah. she went from a couple hundred employees to a very senior person with north of 10,000 employees.
0: Yeah. I'm going to shift it just a little bit and I cannot encourage people enough to read the book. But now you're on the other side, you're a consultant, you're a coach, you're a speaker, you're, you know, all of those things like that, leading and helping leaders figure out this cultural transformation thing. And from what I have experienced, you can't change your culture till you change inside. You've got to examine that. You've got to see what is it that you're doing. That's causing people to have either resistance to you or they're confused about what's important. And it's always a do as I say, not as I do. But people yeah. watch your feet and they do what you do, not what Amen. you say. Amen. Right. How do you get leaders to really stop and and admit their co-conspirers in the culture that they currently have?
1: Wow, that's a great question of. Uh- and it goes a little deeper than just how we view business, right? I think there's a there's a there's an introspection that's required, and some self reflection that's required to first admit there's an opportunity to lead differently. Yeah, um, I like to quantify it as much as possible, and and I'll encourage leaders whether I'm in a consulting agreement or um, uh, just talking to friends, or even in uh, I have a side business now that I do some work within. I like to quantify it by asking. And then, and that can be a a 360 survey that can be an anonymous survey, Mm -hmm. but the hardest part at times is to get that leader to acknowledge that there's an opportunity to even hear. And the way I did it uh, as a W2 employee with, with my staff is I would include myself in those 360 surveys Mm -hmm. and I would share the results with Mm -hmm. my team. Mm -hmm. Of course they were anonymous. So they, you know, they knew who said what about me, but I, I would share them and I would uh, walk through every single question and response. And of course there was awkward and uncomfortable feedback at times, but I think being open about that and showing and sharing how I've got my own work to do, I'm not perfect. And if I, even if I disagree with the reaction or the answers, Mm -hmm. it's their perception Mm -hmm. and that matters a whole hell of a lot. So I need to take that seriously. So when I'm in a consulting agreement or arrangement, I encourage leaders to do the same thing. And it is, you know, I guess better or worse, and maybe it's even better being an outsider in, in, inside of that conversation. I feel quite comfortable saying, Hey man, your team is not really feeling the way that you approach them. Your team is not really feeling your style because when I go in, what I like to do is first meet with the leader, but then I meet with their team. I do an organizational assessment Mm -hmm. and I meet with every person that they'll allow me to meet with. I summarize what those interactions are like. And oftentimes it's really unique. Um, Mm -hmm. I've been surprised to see this. They are way more open with me, the outsider Mm -hmm. than they are with, with the leader. So, you know, nine times out of 10, if the leader has brought me in, he or she recognizes there's an opportunity. Yeah. So they're a little more open than me kind of forcing it on them. Mm-hmm. The hardest part though, and, I, and this is where I get a little bit disappointed in the work that I do now is I, I get feedback months later that mm-hmm. things were great for several weeks or great for a couple of months, but that leader has kind of backslid to the same old, same old. So that's my next challenge in this in this journey is trying to figure out a way that when I'm gone those messages this paradigm these principles continue to resonate with the organization because as we said a few moments ago
0: mm-hmm.
1: if it's if they're just words on a wall if the leaders mm-hmm. aren't evangelizing and mm-hmm. living it every day
0: Excellent. Excellent. Well, you know, kind of the wrap up question here is, you know, if, as you think back over your life and certainly how you've honed all the things that you've learned into this moment, what do you think your superpower is?
1: Oh, wow. Relatability. Okay, Relatability. And I say that with a lot of confidence because most of my career has been spent in the service business. So running big organizations, big call centers. Mostly mm-hmm. in the healthcare space and a couple other industries, but mostly. So we're talking lots and lots and lots of people from all kinds of backgrounds, mm-hmm. um, all kinds of uh, ethnicities, all kinds of nationalities. You name it, all kinds. But the common denominator I can share with those folks is I started with a headset and a tiny cubicle as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to a community college before I, you know, went to these fancy uh, MBA school. I, 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 I feel relatability is my superpower because I feel very comfortable in a C suite mm-hmm. and I feel very comfortable with the intern because mm-hmm. I, I I've been exposed to both and been both and it's um and I think that is a a quality that that a lot of leaders miss because they feel like whether subliminal or not once I get that position where I've got people reporting to me I'm now a boss I can give orders I can be a little more direct than I've ever been allowed to be. And they replicate that same behavior that they loathed in their boss for many, many years prior to that. So me being relatable that I don't like the way that I was led, that I also started in a tiny cubicle, I think that creates an opening for us to find common ground and respect one another.
0: Well. Obviously we could have talked for a while because I I wanted to dig into that last piece so much. It was it's I'm like chomping at the bit, particularly around, you know, as we talk about diversity in the workplace. Cause I always say the first challenge for a leader is you have a group of people who have no good reason to work together. And it is your job to get them to work together. Bingo. That's right. That's that's, that's right. the challenge. That's right. That is the challenge for A focused common goal set up on a certain timeline, and they have to do it in a way that's inviting and warm and collegial. You know, at least minimally respectful. So you get the minimal amount of work being respectful. Mm -hmm. But if you really want great work, then you've got to get them past the idea of respectful, and they have to work together from being colleagues and and you know seeing this other person as someone there to help them, not to make their work or their life. Yeah. more difficult out of yeah. it. And that's a tough challenge for a leader.
1: Well, it's, it's even tougher when you don't allow them to be them. Yeah. You know what I mean? How, how can we rally around and towards one another if we're not our authentic selves? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you bond with someone that you really don't know who they are? Yeah. Um, so I think that's a challenge and, and and I think a lot of people get it wrong and they do it by force and fear rather than finesse and care.
0: First of all, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us and giving us these gems I love number three, say what you're going to do, do what you say. I also love the one of challenge each other diplomatically. Mm-hmm. And the last one, which we didn't get a chance to talk about, was number 10, which is obsess over the details. Details matter. And understanding, how do you obsess over the details? Because there's a great story in that that particular chapter about obsessing over the details without being micromanaging, right? without being an ogre, without making someone uncomfortable, because you do have to focus on... Did we do what we say we're going to do? And the devil's in the details when you make that statement, right?
1: Amen. Well said.
0: So how can people get a hold of you?
1: Very easy. Uh, So on all social platforms, at Kyle McDowell, Inc., uh, my website is kylemcdowellinc.com.
0: And of course, you can pick up the book anywhere they're being sold um, around the world here. That's right. Um, I'm wishing you so much luck. And guys, you know what I'm going to say? If you liked it, share it. If you didn't like it, share it. Because I guarantee that the conversation that it will generate will help you close the gap from getting where you are now to where you want to be. And on top of that, you're going to get some lessons that are going to be useful to you for sustaining great leadership. Well, as I said before, this a wrap. Hey, thank you so much for following me. And if you really, really want to make things better and help me get the word out, please go like this wherever you're listening to your podcast. Follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram and Twitter. All of that's in the show notes. And for doing that, go to my website and click on the uh, network and you'll be able to get some free gifts that will help you figure out how to be the best leader that you can be. As I always say, if you like it, share it. If you don't like it, share it because I guarantee it will definitely help you become the most remarkable leader you can be.